Kiss Talk and KTNF AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Good morning to all of you joining us locally by radio and streaming online. We appreciate you tuning in. Today is Sunday, February 3rd, 2019. I am your host, Mighty Love, and I'm happy to be joined right here in studio by Farmer Dell, the host of the new podcast, Evidence-Based Eating, a podcast that offers, quote, a skeptical perspective on the science, technology, and ethics of our food choices. This is an open conversation. We're going to be hitting some areas that many people get passionate about, but so few of us really know anything about anyway. So please, we welcome and encourage listener interaction with your phone calls to 952-946-6205, your emails to radio at mnatheist.org, tweet us at Atheist Talk, or find us on Facebook over at facebook.com slash Atheist Talk. And Dell, thank you for joining us on this beautiful spring day. Good morning. It's <laughs> lovely to be here. So I want to start off with your podcast. Uh, your show description is, as I just said, a skeptical perspective on science, technology, and ethics of our food choices. But what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, so um, I am uh, an atheist, a skeptic, and a science enthusiast. I really fell in love with shows like The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe and uh, shows like that that really offer a skeptical take. And it was when I first listened to a show like that, it was like coming home. I think the very first show I downloaded, they were talking about how GMOs are fine. And I was like, these are my people. (laughs) (laughs) But it turns out that there's still like a big black hole where some of that knowledge should be in the skeptical movement, um, especially when it comes to animal agriculture. And I hear a lot of like throwaway lines like, oh, well, we know that like uh, animal agriculture is terrible for the planet. And then they just move on. And it seems like there's a hunger for that knowledge, but not a lot of people out there providing knowledge in that specific niche. And I wanted to be able to fill that for people. So that's what I'm hoping to do with my podcast. And I've listened to the, the two episodes that you have out right now. And yeah, yeah, I think you're succeeding. I mean, <laughs> they're really you. good. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> at first, I was afraid to start the podcast. I mean, I, I turned it over in my head for probably over a year because I was like, oh, what will I even talk about? <laughs> And then I was sitting in my deer stand opening weekend, and I was like, let's just write down a list of possible show topics. And I filled up two full notebook pages, like including scribbling in the margins. And I was like, wow, that was not a thing I needed to worry about. (laughs) And now it's like a paralysis of choice. Like, what do I do next? Because there's so much interesting stuff that I wanted to cover. So, so far, I covered just some statistics about animal antibiotic use and in my first show, um, some statistics about like, how often are they really used? What are they used for? What are the labels you see at the grocery store mean? And in my second show, Hertzy, who's often on Minnesota Atheist Talk, uh, joined me and we talked about raw milk. Uh, what is it? Does it actually taste different? Um, is it going to cure autism and cancer? No. <laughs> Surprise. Spoiler alert. Probably not. Uh, and is it going to kill you? <laughs> That's the other option there. So we, we just dove into that. They're not super long episodes. I'm targeting about 30 minutes because I don't want them to get really long, but unfortunately that means they have a pretty narrow focus. So I haven't recorded my third episode yet. That'll be happening soon. I got to narrow my topics down. I like that they kind of have a laser focus though, because there's so much, you could go off on so many tangents and it would get like, you just, it's the way you get, you just get right to it. 
and you answer a whole bunch of questions related to it, but yet you still leave it open to like do follow-up shows or like have additional questions. It, it's a really good format that you have. Thank you. Yeah. And I really look forward to having more guests. My first episode was kind of a monologue and I, I don't think it was that entertaining. I was entertained. <laughs> Thanks. The second episode where I was talking to a guest was great. And the format that I would love to have is um, have guest hosts um, that are, they could just be friends or they could be other content creators, but they don't have to do any work. They can just come and say like, I have a question. And then I do a deep dive on that topic. You know, even raw milk, I'm, I'm a dairy farmer, so I, I know a lot about it, but I still had to do some research for that show to make sure I had my statistics right, to make sure I had sources for everything, to verify the things that I've been taught or just sort of common knowledge in the dairy industry, to verify that those are really true. Um, and I, I try to link to at least a handful of my main sources in my show notes just so people can back uh, see that I have some backup for what I'm saying. Um, it, it's it's been going well so far. I'm I, I just have so many more things. I feel like I have three years worth of show topics I want to talk about. So. I, I was listening to the raw milk episode and I was finishing it up this morning, and I was reminded that at the large nameless health corp corporation that I work for, our CFO, not our CEO, yeah, our CFO was coming into the lab, and you know we're a medical science lab, mm-hmm. and I just something came raw milk came up for some reason, <laughs> and he started going off about all the cancer cures and everything else. And I'm looking, I'm like, you realize you're standing in a science lab, right? Like, we can't let you just say that stuff. And like, he's like, but maybe people didn't get sick or people are getting sick now because of they're not drinking the raw milk or maybe. And then he started to go off on the anti-vaccine stuff. I'm like, oh, oh my God, you are the. <laughs> it's really interesting that the, the traps that people can fall into. I have a good friend who is an RN and is really into essential oils. And it's, it's like, you're an RN. I know you've had a lot of education in this area, but people can fall into those traps. And unfortunately, it seems like a lot of people in the atheist and skeptical movements are so good at pointing out logical fallacies in a lot of areas. But when it comes to especially animal agriculture, they fall into an appeal to nature and appeal to antiquity just over and over and over again. And we're so excited about technology uh, as science enthusiasts. We're so excited about technology in so many areas. Why are we afraid of technology when it comes to agriculture? And so I want to do some myth debunking, but I also just want to get people excited about like, let's talk about the brand new robots that milk cows. Like how cool cool is that? I want to do an episode on that because I actually have some family members that installed uh, two cow milking robots very recently. So, like, I want to talk about that because it's 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 really cool. <laughs> yeah, it, oh, that, and it's not, I'm assuming it's not like Rosie the robot. Um, no, so it's like a it's like a little like a little stall, like a little machine, and the cows walk into it, and then the a robot arm pops out and it cleans their udder and it locates where their teats are, and then it attaches the milkers, and the cows uh, get a little food distributed to them, and they have a collar with an RFID chip, so it it tells them which cow this is, so you can get so much data from it. It's really cool. They're also pedometers, um, so you can, and it weighs them, and you can see, like, they'll lose 30 pounds if they're sick, because, and that's just because they eat 100 pounds of food a day, so if they're not having a good day and they have a reduced appetite, they're going to weigh less when they come into the robot, and they come into the robot whenever they feel like it. it's you mean just, when you use your cattle prod and inhumanely shove them in there like the terrible dairy farmer you are? <laughs> that is that was not sarcasm. necessary. <laughs> okay. No, not necessary. They Well, 
some cows need the food treat to kind of lure them into the robot, and but that also creates some cows that are um, real bosses. They'll just like go through the robot over and over again trying to get a snack. But the caller tells the robot that this cow was just here, and you can tell it like she's only allowed four visits a day. Oh, cool! Yeah, so. Um, and then it'll also alert you, like, if a cow hasn't come through the robot in, like, 20 hours, you'll get an alert. And it'll be like, all right, like, maybe she's not feeling well. Or um, if they're in heat, they'll be a little distracted maybe, and they won't remember to come through the robot. And then you usually just sort of gather them. And once you get them close to the robot, they're like, oh, yeah, this thing. You know, for the most part, cows enjoy being milked because uh, it's kind of a relief. So it's not something you have to work very hard to get them to do. So I didn't understand that until we talked like at the winter solstice, like two months ago. Why do you think people like myself who think they're experts in all this stuff, like why do we, you know, I have no farming experience whatsoever. And yet I thought that I knew all this stuff. Well, it's animals evoke in us. um, Most of us are pet owners. Most of us, uh, especially if we're science enthusiasts, we think we know a lot about biology. And then we transfer some of that onto many other species of animals. And so I totally get it. We're all, we think we're animal lovers. And and we are. We we love our pets. But um, different species of animals have really different needs. I mean, think about the differences in, in needs and behaviors between a dog and a cat and a dog and a cat and a human. And even those, they're all predator animals. And I think a big part of some of the difference is that uh, cows, chickens, these are prey animals. And they have things that make dogs and cats excited, make cows really frightened because their brain is all about safety. It's about routine. It's about knowing where they're at. Um, So every species just has really different needs. And until you work with them a lot in a one-on-one environment, um, it just might not occur to you. And then once you sit down with a farmer and talk, you know, even for a few minutes, I think it usually clicks for most people. So so I'm I'm a city girl. I enjoy long walks in the woods of western Washington, far away from large farm animals. <laughs> what does a typical day on your farm look like? Like, or or is there a typical day? Because I imagine like the day we had where it was negative 30 the other day <laughs> is not like other days where today where it's like 40 and cloudy. Yeah, it's I mean, about half of your day is, like, very, very structured. You milk the cows at the same time. You try to feed the cows at the same time. You try to feed the cows um, the exact thing that they need. So it's all about trying to keep the cow's day as structured and as routine as possible. So you milk every 12 hours. Um, So I milk at about 6 a.m. and 6 p.m., and that takes about an hour. So each cow will take between 5 and 10 minutes to get milked, and I can milk 12 at a time on my farm. And... Then you feed the cows, um, and then the rest of the day is just for everything else that comes up, you know, a sick cow, or maybe today is vaccination day, stuff like that. So about half of it is very structured and routine, and the other half is, guess what? Your tractor broke, so now you're going to spend four hours trying to figure that out. (laughs) So I really enjoy it because I I like problem solving. I like being my own boss, and those are some of the things that really appeal to me. And I love animals and caring for them, so that's why I love farming. I'm I'm just now thinking... Because of the skeptic angle that, like, I now have to worry about all of your cows developing autism. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, it's just vaccines, autism, they, they kind of go hand in hand, right? There is, scarily, the anti-vax movement has invaded no. the world of pets a lot. Oh, and no. it is it has gotten into uh, some areas of agriculture as well. It's a little scary. <laughs> All right, please stay with us for the break. We'll return to Atheist Talk with Farmer Dell, host of the Evidence-Based Eating Podcast. I'm Eddie Love. You're listening to AM 950 KTNF. Welcome back to AM 950 KTNF, the regressive voice of Minnesota. You're tuned into Atheist Talk. I'm your host, Maddie Love, in studio this week with Farmer Dell, host of the Evidence-Based Eating Podcast. Atheist Talk is produced with funding from Minnesota Atheist, from the Minnesota Atheists, Cucumbers Restaurant in Edina, Minnesota. Please consider visiting our sponsors, and if you do, let them know that you appreciate their support of Atheist Talk. If you would like to advertise in this program and help keep us on the air, please contact us at radio at mnatheist.org. Speaking of visiting our sponsors, I'm a, woman of my, I'm a woman of my word, and you can join myself and a whole gaggle of other folks from Minnesota Atheists at Cucumbers today for brunch after the show. We start gathering about 1030. Just tell the cashier, cashier you're with Minnesota Atheists, and they'll point you to our table. Honestly, I really do hope to see you there. <laughs> and if you're looking to contribute to a great cause and hang out with other fellow atheists, you can join the Minnesota Atheist team to raise money for childhood cancer research with a charity that wisely used the highest form of humor possible and called themselves St. Bald Ricks. Counter to the name, it isn't religious. The name is a sacrilegious pun, which is just awesome. <laughs> Find the link to the Minnesota Atheist team in the show notes or navigate over to the Minnesota Atheist Facebook page to find the event there. If you're like me and you don't want to shave your head, you can still donate or even just show up for support. If you want to get involved in the conversation with Farmer Dell this morning, you can call us at 952-946-6205, email us at radio at mnatheist.org, or tweet us at Atheist Talk using our Facebook. Now, back to Dell, who will remind me again why I should buy antibiotic-free chicken, chicken – why I should buy antibiotic-free chicken, free-range asparagus, and vegan beef. Okay. <laughs> or uh, uh, what did you say to me the other day? Something about free-range apples, I think? Yes, free-range apples. <laughs> we I... wouldn't want our apples in cages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, labels on food are really, really interesting. And um, uh, the unfortunate truth is almost any label on – a piece of meat or even a piece of food is probably not contributing to the thing that you wish you were contributing to, um, if that makes any sense. So on my episode about antibiotic-free, or about antibiotics, I talked about how the label antibiotic-free, um, it might just mean that this particular meat has no antibiotics in it, which is actually true of all meat and dairy products. They actually have a whole testing regime to make sure that there are no antibiotics in your meat or milk. And that's because once you treat an animal, you have a waiting period before you can sell that animal. And there's penalties attached if you do sell that milk or um, sell the animal for food. So it might just mean nothing. It might just mean that that meat is just like the meat sitting next to it that doesn't have that label but is a dollar cheaper. Or... <laughs> Or there may be a label that means um, this animal never had antibiotics in their life whatsoever. Well, what that means is, generally speaking, on an organic farm or a farm that uh, is trying to sell meat with that label on it, if an animal does get sick, they're not supposed to withhold treatment because that would be cruel. They're supposed to treat the animal and then just sell them under the cheaper label. So it's not that you're actually contributing to less antibiotic use. It's just that this animal was lucky enough to have never needed antibiotics very badly in their life. And... The same farm was selling animals under the label antibiotic-free for its entire lifetime and just regular 
a dollar cheaper. So the labels are confusing uh, because they don't always mean what they appear to mean and not actually very helpful once you actually dig under the surface. It sounds like that like the farmer has to sell it for more because I would imagine that like if I'm if I have a hundred animals of whatever type but like I have to end up kicking 25 of them off to like the the and the label that isn't labeled antibiotic free like the store brand label right like I still need to make my money back like because I'm selling those now at cheaper I I feel like the farmers actually now at that point like once you've made that decision like you're kind of stuck with it uh yeah so because farmers themselves usually don't do any of the further processing the whole farm has to be under an antibiotic-free certification or not. And then it it usually means that if they have to treat the animal, they'll actually sell them to the neighbor down the road, or maybe they actually own two separate premises because trying to individually split animals one way or the other doesn't really work. So it kind of has to be like the whole operation is one way or the whole operation is another way. So if you just run a conventional farm, even if 80% of my cows have never had antibiotics, all my stuff just goes under the conventional label. Because but you I'm could not... have a farm next door that yeah. is your farm separated just by a, a chain link fence or whatever. Yeah, there's some there's some rules, like particularly with organic. Organic certification has like a whole boatload of rules that come with it. And, and honestly, most of it is just an a, appeal to nature or appeal to antiquity. It, um, it's not really a scientific division of what's allowed in organic and what's not. Um, and, and there are sometimes rules about like buffer zones or barriers, especially when it comes to crops. There's uh, buffer zones that need to be planted around them and stuff so that you can't just get uh, drift of, of conventional right. pesticides into your organic crops and stuff like that. But yeah, um, a lot of organic farms work with like a neighbor. And so like as soon as they have to treat a cow, they have a known neighbor that they will sell that cow to. Um, or if you're big enough, you can have multiple premises. But yeah, you need to have sort of a provenance of the animal their whole life if you want to sell them under the uh, higher higher price labels. So there's only like three minutes left in this segment. <laughs> um, and I want to ask you about the organic label. Yeah. But like I said, you only have like three minutes for the end of the segment. <laughs> um, what is the most common mis- misconception that you hear about organic farming? Oh, um, I think that there are that there's a couple of them. I mean, that there are no no pesticides or chemicals used, which, of course, I think as skeptics know, when you hear, like, no chemicals used, we all know to roll our eyes a little bit at that, you know? Because <laughs> they do water the crops. Right, because the <laughs> crops get watered, um, things like that. And also, I think there's a misconception that um, organic animals, for example, are less likely to get sick or something like that. And and that's not necessarily the case. It's just that once they get sick enough to need antibiotics, they're going to get treated and they're going to get pushed out of the organic system into the regular food chain. So those are a couple of the big things. And the organic label, the, the rules are, I mean, they're a stack a foot high. So there's so many things that I could get into. Like, I've been thinking about that for a podcast episode, but I would have to split it into a a whole chain of things. I think I'd really have to narrow it down. <laughs> Do you think you would you be able to sell your milk as all natural? Yeah, the the all natural claim has very little uh, regulation around it. So 
I think that would probably work. I'd, I'd have to look into it a little deeper because I don't want to. I don't want to put my foot in my mouth as far as what's required oh, right. and what's not. But for the most part, the all natural claim is fairly meaningless. I mean, even more meaningless than the word word natural. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I hear these labels. And it's like, well, like organic. Like I took a lot of chemistry. Mm-hmm. All milk is organic. Yeah, organic means something <laughs> totally different when it comes to chemistry, doesn't it? Yep. Um, and it's natural. Like, yeah, that that cow made that milk. Yeah. That seems to be natural. Right. And, um, you know, the pesticides that are allowed to be used in organic agriculture are just natural pesticides versus synthetic pesticides, which doesn't necessarily mean that they are less toxic or safer. Um, so that's kind of a, a, a chemical by chemical decision that you need to be able to make. And that's not the kind of stuff that's on the food label. Right. You can't see from the label whether or not this farmer withheld treatment on their animal a week longer than they should have because they were hoping not to have to sell it. You can't see whether, no, they followed the rules to the letter. They treated them as soon as they saw a sign of illness. It, it, the stuff that really matters is not the stuff that's on the label. And the stuff that's on the label isn't what it seems to be. It's, it's, it's kind of frustrating, you know? All right. Well, we're turning off this short commercial break. You're listening to Atheist Talk on KTNF AM 950. Thank you for tuning in to Atheist Talk on AM 950 KTNF. I'm your host, Maddie Love, in studio with Farmer Dell, who produces the Evidence-Based Eating Podcast. If you'd like to chat with us this morning, you can call us at 952-946-6205, email us at radio at mnatheist.org, or tweet us at Atheist Talk. Before we continue with this conversation, bit of housekeeping, I want to thank our dedicated group of volunteers and generous donations of, well, you, our listeners. You help keep Atheist Talk on the air and in podcast. This week, I'd like to thank donors Shirley and Steve. If you're able to help with a donation, please consider doing so at our Radio Fun page or our Patreon, where you get extended interviews at patreon.com slash atheistalk. Minnesota Atheist is a 501c3 tax-deductible organization. We couldn't do this show without you, and we do deeply appreciate your support. Music for Atheist Talk is by composer and member Brent Michael David and is used with permission. Please note all opinions are of the guests and hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the Minnesota Atheist organization. Mischief managed. Back to the conversation with Farmer Dell, who is going to remind me again why veganism is the only true morality and atheists who aren't vegans are terrible people. Okay, that <laughs> we're not actually going to talk about that. I thought that was a funny joke when I wrote it last night. Um, there may have been some beer involved. <laughs> actually, there was. I'd like to formally endorse Moon Man by <laughs> Nuclearis Brewing. Delicious. That uh, sounds delicious. That is not an endorsement of Minnesota Atheist or Atheist Talk. <laughs> Just for Maddie. Just for me. Uh, no, sociable cider works though. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Anyway, anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, I want to talk about – I do want to get back to your podcast and, and farming and these are really cool topics because I don't know much about them. <laughs> but I want to take a few minutes to briefly touch on both your atheism and your skepticism if that's OK. Absolutely. So um, I'm from rural Minnesota. Uh Generally speaking, Michelle Bachman's district. So that gives you the, the, sort of a picture of of where I come from. Um, my family was nominally Catholic. Like, I'm not sure if they ever took me to church before they decided to send me to Catholic grade school. Just because they wanted sort of the smaller class sizes, higher quality education. I put that in quotes. I mean, it was it was a good school. I I got a good education there. But honestly, it, it never really made sense to me. Um, you know, 
I did awesome in school. I loved all my classes except for a religion class because the stuff <laughs> they were saying, like, it didn't make sense. They were like, well, this is a mystery and no one understands it and you are not supposed to understand it. And I was like, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. Like, what? What? And in religion class, my questions bothered everyone. Whereas in all my other classes, my questions, everyone loved them because I was like a straight A top of the class student. And so like it wasn't atheism wasn't a thing that like I was never really Christian. It just never made sense to me. And I actually remember the exact moment that I became aware that what my teachers were telling me about God was not necessarily the case, that there were alternative theories out there. And that was when I read the book. I was eight years old. I read the book, um, The Golden Compass. Oh, I love that book. Yeah. And, you know, they made that into a movie a few years ago, and Christians were very upset about it. And they said, this will turn children into atheists. And I sort of laughed to myself because I was like, well, I mean, it kind (laughs) of did. But just because it was the first thing I happened to read that proposed an alternate mythology. And I, I remember reading that specific chapter where they find out who God is, and God is just an angel, and then God dies. And I was like, oh. Well, obviously, there's just, like, it just made perfect sense that I was like, oh, there are other options out there. Well, clearly the one they've been telling me here is BS because it never made any sense. Um, My parents still made me go through confirmation, even though, you know, they never went to church themselves. Maybe if they'd got on the indoctrination sooner, maybe it would (laughs) have stuck. Um, So, you know, there were some fights over that because I was, uh, by the time I was, you know, Catholics get confirmed when they're 15. By that time, I was pretty sure of my identity. And I remember we had to write a letter to the priest saying that we sincerely wanted to be confirmed. And we weren't just doing it because our parents made us. And I was like, all right, guys. So you want me to lie to the priest or not do this? And I was like, I mean, I feel like I'm disrespecting your religion by lying to the priest. Am I not? And my mom just was like, all of your points are good, Write the letter. but you're doing this anyway <laughs> because I am your mom and I said so. So as a skeptic, that was your first experience with confirmation bias. <laughs> well, yeah, a little bit. I mean, <laughs> it was just so clear that like there wasn't a good reason. And, and finally, she landed on, I remember very clearly, st- her sitting in the kitchen and saying to me, but you need, like, don't you want to get married in a church? So guess what? I got married in my parents' backyard because I was like, eh, don't want to get married in a church. And I told my husband, um, we can get married in a church if it's like your family church that you went to, and I'm not lying to the priest. I'm going to tell him I'm an atheist. So if your Catholic rural priest will marry us in your church, go for it. And he was like, uh, I, don't th- I was like, I don't think he's going to do it, but we can try. And then he actually ended up being the best man in a wedding for a Lutheran friend of ours. But, um, that sounds more- scandalous. I don't know much know. about Catholicism, but that sounds scandalous. Well, where I grew up, there were Catholics and Lutherans, and so the Catholics were told that the Lutherans were the liberals, but apparently Lutherans are actually not liberals. This is a thing I learned in adulthood. Um, but it was a more conservative Lutheran church, and our friends were living in sin, and it was mostly a financial consideration, and... Their priest was a real jerk. Or, sorry, their pastor, right? If you're a Lutheran, I, you're a pastor. Was a real maybe. jerk about it. And my husband was like, this is all really silly. Eric has given us a thumbs up that, yes, it is a pastor. Yeah, <laughs> yes, the pastor. Um, so he went through that whole wedding process and saw how difficult. And he was like, none of this makes any sense. Who is this pastor to tell them that they need to spend all this money to have separate apartments or he won't marry them? And 
he was like, you're right. This is silly. Why, why would we even go through this? And so everyone everyone was really happy with it, even some of his more conservative, conservative family members. Nobody said a word. Everybody loved our very non-traditional wedding. I mean, we didn't mention God. We didn't have a priest involved. It was just a friend of my dad. So it was, it was a great time. But um, so for me, like becoming an atheist, I sort of always was an atheist. And it's a big part of my identity just because that's how my brain works. Um, but it's not something where I have a story of coming out or, or of changing my mind about it. Um, and skepticism, I guess, is the other place you wanted to go. Um, yeah, because I know a lot of people will come to atheism through skepticism. Not not that you have to be a skeptic to be an atheist or an atheist to be a skeptic as we, <laughs> as we learn far too often. Um, but yeah, I was interested when we would talk like in between segments how you had mentioned that you were an atheist first. Yeah, yeah. And I've always been like a very analytical and logical person and I, I think really hard about stuff uh, or I try to. But in high school, a friend of ours um, was in a car accident where he was driving, and he had been driving recklessly in a way that many teenagers do. But he hit a patch of ice, and a friend of ours was very, very badly injured. And there was a lawsuit. It was a whole thing. Um, I was there. I, I was there within a few minutes of the crash and was with him through all this, and I watched him convince himself of a different set of events over about a week, a different, a completely different reality. And that's a behavior that I've continued to see from him with other parts of our lives. And when you've known someone for 20 years, you know when they're remembering history just totally wrong. Um, and I'm not sure to this day how much of that it appears that this new narrative is reality for him. And I started understanding that we can have confirmation bias. We can convince ourselves of, of completely different things than really happened. And I started thinking very skeptically at that point in my life. And that's just a thing that I'm always doing. I'm just constantly trying to check myself, trying to check my biases, and especially just to seek out new information and you know, sometimes that actually stops me from doing things because as soon as I open my mouth, I think of the counter argument. And if I don't have an answer to the counter argument, I don't even want to say it to begin with. So it it takes a lot of energy to be skeptical, I think. <laughs> I, I agree. It takes a lot of energy to be skeptical. And it actually takes a lot of self-confidence in a way because if you're going to open your mouth to say anything, you have to be pretty confident in what you're saying, I think, because you've already double-checked it in your head before you say it out loud. And, and that's sort of where skepticism started for me, is I had just a really uh, formative experience with understanding how people can can have the same event happen and just come with vastly different conclusions. Yeah, because, I mean, and, and granted, I don't, I don't know your friend, but I know from a family member that I have, they talk about their childhood. Mm-hmm. It's like I've known this person since they were an infant. Like, yeah. The things you're telling me that happened in your childhood, I mean, it's, I guess it's possible that they happened when <laughs> I didn't. But like that did not happen. You did not go through these things. This big like, and it's but they're not lying. Like right. this is that that is the narrative they they're telling themselves. That is the memory they have. Right. And it's so like I have such. A, and so then I, I look at that and go, Ooh, where are my blind spots? How much of right. my memory that I have about X, Y, or Z is like. 
really happened. It really didn't. Right, right. I mean, it can almost um, push you right into like a hard solipsism problem because it's like, <laughs> wow, if this person and, and you start doubting yourself and it's like, wait, and then you like check with other people and you're like, no, we've got seven people here. We were all there. We all know what happened. Right. Um, and it's just really interesting to watch then. I don't know. Maybe that was a behavior that or uh, something that person was already prone to ahead of time. I don't I don't recall it specifically being a big deal. But now I see it in in little things that they do all the time, um, like, you know, cheating at cards or, or <laughs> things like that. You know, like, oh, I didn't do that. And it's like, we watched you. You know what I mean? It's just and it's just like, wow, I don't want that to happen. I don't want to be that person. I want to be grounded right. in reality. That's really important to me. So I'm always double checking, triple checking, you know, everything I do, I'm trying to triple check all of my opinions and and that's why um I love talking to people with different viewpoints. I've, I've told you a couple times, you know, I'm a dairy farmer, which means I produce both milk and meat because dairy cows are also meat cows. Um, I love talking to vegans and vegetarians because they and I actually have a lot more in common than myself and the average consumer because we're really, really interested in where our food comes from and thinking about it really hard. I mean, I have a degree in animal science, but I also have a degree in philosophy. So <laughs> these are the types of things I really like to think about. And I really enjoy and seek out hanging out with and talking to people who have the opposite opinions from me. Because if I can't talk to people that have the opposite opinion of me, then, then why do I even have my opinion, you know? Well, I'm just wondering, and we've only got like a minute left, but um, I typically think of farmers as like older, socially conservative, church-going, country music-loving. Oh, I hate you know, country music so much. <laughs> they don't have a degree. And, and not to think of them as stupid, just like mm-hmm. not college-educated. So mm-hmm. are how messed up is my stereotype of, of farmers in general? I mean, it certainly exists. I mean, there was a, a clan of hicks in my high school, and they were – Somewhat farmers, but also just people who live rurally and sort of identify that way. And then there's plenty of farmers like me who have a very open minds. And especially in Minnesota, there's a really strong tradition of, of rural Democrats and of, of Democratic farmers. And in fact, a huge, I think probably the majority of farms that I worked on in my life uh, were solidly blue voting democratically most of their lives, which is a little different in a red state, but particularly here in Minnesota, there's actually a really strong base of, of liberal-leaning farmers. Is that why it's called a DFL? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll return to our guest, Farmer Dell, after this short commercial break. Please stay with us. I'm Maddie Love, and you're listening to Atheist Talk on KTNF AM 950. Welcome back to AM 950, KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. You're tuned in Atheist Talk. I'm your host, Maddie Love, in studio with Farmer Dell, host of the Evidence-Based Eating Podcast. If you're curious about Minnesota atheists, and you just listened to that last commercial, we do <laughs> episodes. Uh, you can browse articles, book reviews, and peruse the calendar of upcoming events. You know, I'm just reading, as I'm reading the script, I realize we just listened to this commercial. So I'm just going to skip all this because, like, you know, it's good stuff. But, I mean, membership does have good perks. And really, if you're listening to this program and you think that Minnesota Atheist is a cool place, you should probably come check us out. We do a lot of cool things. <laughs> anyway, back to our conversation with Farmer Dell, who is explaining why an Apple Watch was a better than a Fitbit in tracking the steps of a dairy cow. Okay. We really weren't talking about that during break. 
But but I do I actually do have a question about that because there's that I think it's a Kemp's commercial, and they're showing like this is how many steps our dairy cow gets, and I remember we talked about this at the winter solstice banquet. But I don't – and you were telling me something about like – and you talked about this earlier in the show today about like prey animals versus predator animals and how maybe sometimes it's OK if your cow just wants to sit in a stall and be like oh, – feel safe. That is absolutely what cows would prefer to do. So so this is a dairy cow's uh, time budget for the day. Like this is actually a thing you should do for your dairy cows is do a time budget because you don't want to be bothering them too much because they should be resting, like laying down. 14 hours a day plus like that that is what they would love to do they spend seven or eight hours eating and a few hours drinking and socializing but mostly just laying down and chewing their cud and that comes uh, if you want to go like evolutionary with it the idea with a a cow is that when they find some good food good grass Oh, cow's digestive system is so cool. So they have no, te- no teeth on the top. They they eat grass by wrapping their tongue around it and tearing it out. Oh, I had no idea. That's so cool. Yeah. Well, they have one molar on either side in the back. But okay. if you, like, look at their face, you, it's just hard gums on the top. So, like, a cow can't bite you unless you have, like, unless you're, like, in up to your forearm. So, like, <laughs> I have been bitten by a cow, but it's difficult to do. <laughs> Anyway, so when they see good food, they're just supposed to, like, eat as much of it as fast as they can, just shovel it into their mouths. And then when they're feeling safe, they burp it back up and chew it because grass is, like, mostly fiber. So they need to have a lot of chewing to digest it. So they're going to – every piece of food they eat, they're going to chew two to three times. They're going to burp it back up and chew it. So if a cow is chewing her cud, which she'll be doing many hours a day, it means she feels very relaxed and safe. So, like – that's actually something we do is we'll walk through a barn. If you're like a consultant, you'll come into my barn and you'll look around and you'll count what percent of my cows are chewing their cud right now. Just like laying there. Like when I so if I, if I walk by a farm or drive by a farm, I see a bunch of cows. Up. Will they mm-hmm. do this in the field too? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they're just all just laying there and like chewing their gum, chewing their cud, whatever. Yeah. It's like, oh, those are happy, healthy cows. Exactly. It means she's not at all frightened if she's chewing her cud. It means she's very chill, very relaxed. So, like, um, if you watch cows being milked, a lot of times, even while they're being milked, they're chewing their cud because they're just happy little cows. And by little, I mean 1,500 pounds, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and their whole – they have four stomachs or – if you want to be a pedant, you can say they have a four-compartment stomach, but, I mean, it's really – it's basically four stomachs. And the first one is about 40 gallons, and wow. it is just a giant fermentation vat. So it's actually just full of bacteria and also some protozoa and some fungi. Um, and that's what's digesting all that fiber. And so the cows are actually eating the bacteria – more they, they get some volatile fatty acids absorbed in that first stomach, but mostly it's all those bacteria that are growing, and that's what's continuing on the rest of the stomachs. So it's, it's, it's a, a totally different digestive system. It's a totally different style of living. And what they really need to be healthy and happy, and healthy and happy cows make more milk, is to just feel really safe and really chill and have a very normal routine. So uh, that's... I, no. I feel like we got slightly off topic. Sorry. Well, <laughs> I just I was got thinking, really though, excited about the cow digestive system. <laughs> as you're talking about them needing their bacteria, like humans have the same thing. We don't have four stomachs. But yeah. if, if we're lacking certain bacteria, we can't create a lot of the B vitamins we need. We can't create a lot of the clotting factors that we need. Like all that's done right in your gut. Yeah. Um, uh, and cows, um, cows do all that in their 
four stomachs, and their very last stomach is basically like our stomach, which is a ton of hydrochloric acid and no bugs alive in our stomachs. But then there are bugs in our intestines, and there's there's some of that in cows' intestines as well. Now, horses are called pseudo-ruminants. So cows are ruminants because they have a rumen. That's the name of the first stomach. So horses are what's called pseudo-ruminants. So they eat all that grass as well. But, like, horses have teeth on both sides. That's one of the ways you can tell they're not very closely related. They are not as good. Like, horses are known for having really sensitive stomachs, right? If, I, I don't know if you know anything about no. horses, but no. a lot of people do I knew still. they had teeth. Horses are known for <laughs> – I had a friend uh, in high school who got her ear bit off by a horse. So oh. not something you have to worry about with cows. Yeah. Plus one in the cow category. You, you, look, you just don't taunt Mr. Ed. No. <laughs> but uh, horses have a digestive system like ours. But they still eat all this grass, so they have really sensitive stomachs, and then they have a really long intestine to try to still use bacteria to get nutrition out of all that fiber uh, that humans can't digest, and horses aren't even that efficient at it. So, so uh, other ca- animals that are ruminants, if you guys are deer hunters at all, deer are also ruminants. Like, they're actually basically mini cows in a lot of ways, which I think is pretty cool. I guess I have seen, like, you know, where you see a deer just sitting there, laying there, just like... Yep, they'll chew, they'll okay. chew their little cud, and so are sheep and goats. So there's a whole family of things. I believe camels and, like, alpacas and stuff are pseudo-ruminants, so they're more like a horse. Um, and poultry digestive systems are even cooler. Like, I, I need to do a whole podcast on those because, I mean, you think they're these big, cuddly animals, and then you learn about them, and it's like, this is so alien. Wait, like, what kind actually- of digestive system? Poulter? Poultry, poultry, oh, like okay. birds, have a really okay. interesting digestive system. Well, yeah, because they're dinosaurs. Too. Yeah, yeah, so, and like, it's, that it's makes sense. Totally different from from ours. You know, pigs are more like humans. They have a very similar diet to humans. So, uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm no. just nerding out hey, about all of this. Stuff. I love science, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you. So we talk sciencey stuff. Yeah, absolutely. but I did. We've only got a couple minutes left. Um, I. I, I think that everybody probably understands your legal name is not Farmer Dell. <laughs> and we've talked like at the Solstice Bank about how like some, some of the reasons you needed to use a pseudonym for like this podcast yeah. and for like coming on here. But one of the things you talked about specifically was PETA. Yeah, there are actually um, – there are several – PETA I don't think is necessarily – it, but there are a few groups that are actually um, terroristic organizations, like Animal Liberation Front is one that's actually um, like on the FBI watch list as a terrorist organization um, that will occasionally target farms, especially farms that are very active on social media and things like that. And I'm not super worried about it. I don't think it's super likely, but it's likely enough that if I could just keep things separate and, and I can keep my, my atheist activities a little separate from my professional life as well. Um, just at least have kind of a screen between those things, um, because there is there is the vast majority majority of vegans and vegetarians are wonderful people who I actually have a lot in common with, and I love talking with because they're interested in where their food comes from and how farming works and um, what's good for animals and and biology as much as I am, which is awesome. But uh, there is a very small segment of that population that's that's willing to do a lot of, of bad things because they view what I do as murder. And that's that's really tough uh, to think about. So, All right. Well, thank you for tuning in to Atheist Talk. We'd love for you to join us again next Sunday. We look forward to seeing some of you at brunch in a few minutes. All right. This has been, this has been Atheist Talk on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Stick around if you're a Patreon listener. Mm-hmm.